Hey, welcome to In the Thick. This is a podcast about politics, race, and culture from a POC perspective. I'm Maria Hinojosa. And I'm Julio Ricardo Varela. And on November 6th of last year, we witnessed a day of victories for women. You know, elections really do have consequences. Julio, you went to Washington, D.C. recently. You were so excited to be there. You were, like, texting me every moment, like, oh, my God, I talked to this person, I talked to this person. (laughs) And um, you actually got a chance to speak to one of the new women who are changing the face of Congress. That is correct, Maria. I interviewed Congresswoman Veronica Escobar in her congressional office. So Congresswoman Escobar won the 16th District of Texas by a landslide. And that, that's a very famous district for people that have been following Beto O'Rourke. It's El Paso and his surroundings. That used to be the district that O'Rourke represented. So I got a chance to spend some time with the congresswoman to talk a little bit about what's it like to be part of this new political landscape. Oh, my God. I'm so excited to listen. And thank you for doing this interview and for going down to Washington. I know it was a lot of hard work for you. Ha ha ha. Let's listen to the interview. I'm so excited. <laughs> This is such a new, diverse Congress, and you're part of that. You know, one of the one of the first Latinas in Texas uh, with your colleague to be named to the House, uh, which is incredible. Like, do you sit back and look at this diverse group and go, whoa, like, how does it make you feel like you're in this moment from El Paso and just seeing all this? Just starting with the fact that I am here has been pretty incredible. And I've told this story a couple times, but it had not quite sunk in after the election that I was going to be a member of Congress. And it was such a whirlwind right after that. We were called up, had to go to uh, two weeks of uh, freshman orientation. Between that, we had Thanksgiving, which really didn't feel like a holiday because everything was so crazy. But there was a moment either on the second day of orientation or it was sometime within that first week, can't remember exactly the day, where the group of us was walking up the marble steps to get to the house floor. And as I was walking up the steps, those marble steps have grooves in them and they are very well-worn. And as I was walking up those steps and could feel the grooves under the soles of my feet, I thought, oh my gosh, Abraham Lincoln walked up these steps. JFK walked up these steps. LBJ walked up these steps. And I'm walking up these steps. It was such a profound moment for me of realizing that I was there and that I was a member. I was going to be a member and that I had a tremendous responsibility. So that's been incredible. But yes, the diversity has been amazing. It is so beautiful. You know, there was this meme that circulated for a long time about uh, members of Congress making decisions about women's reproductive health care. And it was a group of white men sitting around a conference table. And then there was another meme a few weeks later of a bunch of dogs sitting, not that men are dogs, but a bunch of dogs sitting around a conference table. And the caption said, decision makers uh, making decisions about feline health. (laughs) And it's so true. You know, it's so true. And women, in my view, have been second class citizens when it comes to health care and equal pay. And and to see this sea of women coming into Congress, it's long overdue and it's beautiful. I saw your speech, your first speech in the House, which is like, I am a proud fronteriza. And 
we shared it and we got a lot of comments from people who were like, I don't think I've ever heard that from a, you know, Tejana, Latina, Mexicana, you know, El Paso woman. So you've already sort of taken like the defender of the border, like you've, you know, since you've started is that you're like, uh-uh, this is not what El Paso is all about. For you personally, like, is that resonating with people or do you feel like, God, I'm just like repeating myself. Tell me a little bit about El Paso and what's being missed in all this debate. So El Paso is one of the safest cities in America. It has been for decades. It was safe long before a wall was ever built there. And for many of us, we have wall fatigue. We have border security fatigue. We're tired of being used as a backdrop for politicians who want to appear tough on immigrants. And it's always the southern border, always the southern border. We're tired of being mischaracterized, tired of being maligned. And so I feel that I and many, many others have long been the defenders of the border and the truth tellers about the border. And this platform is so important. We were just talking about it moments ago here in my office. What a wild time to come into Congress. The government is shut down because of a wall that Fox News has told President Trump they want. And that our country has come to this is tragic. But I will tell you, yes, I think people are listening. I have never seen my party, the Democratic Party, be so adamantly against a wall. And, you know, there could be various reasons for that. I think, you know, in part, uh, leaders understand that if we acquiesce now, we can expect the president to always hold our federal employees hostage. So, you know, there's a debt ceiling discussion coming up. Are they going to hold us hostage then? Even if we acquiesced now and gave the $5.7 billion for a wall, we run out of money again in the late fall. Are we going to have to acquiesce to anything he wants then? So it's more than just about a wall. But what has been incredible to me and wonderful to me is that there's a lot of party unity against it right now. That didn't exist even a year ago. What would you want to tell like people about <laughs> when you hear what the president and what Republicans are saying? And, and it's really, I'm just never in my, my years of covering border communities, I've never seen such like blatant, like lying. So what is it about the border, about where you're from in El Paso that you want people to know, like, because I don't think people know the humanity there. That's a great question. The border has long, El Paso has long been on the receiving end of asylum seekers who, once they're released by ICE, you know, they're detained by Border Patrol, then they're processed by ICE, and then they're released to await their hearing, their asylum hearing. And there's a window in there of about 24 to 48 hours where if it were not for El Pasoans, they would be homeless because they need about 24 to 48 hours to call a family member in Ohio, in Tennessee, whoever it is that is going to adopt them, essentially, during the duration of their wait for an asylum hearing, which in our country is terribly long. It could be two years. They almost always have a family member in the United States. And so they need a place to land after ICE processes them. And we have this incredible organization called Annunciation House run by a man who is a saint, Ruben Garcia. And Ruben has created hospitality centers. And he's been doing this for decades, for 40 years. He's been taking care of the poor and the vulnerable. 
And his focus has been migrants for a very, very long time. So Ruben creates these hospitality centers that are manned by volunteers, 100% volunteers, zero government money, and food and clothing and medical supplies, etc., provided by El Pasoans. So because of so many hundreds of thousands of people are fleeing Central America, they're coming through our southern border. That means the numbers have been higher of people asking for asylum protection and being processed and released into the arms of El Paso. Well, in October, and then again, three days in a row in December, ICE decided to release hundreds of people out into the cold in the dead of night without alerting anybody. And so, you know, here's Ruben running his hospitality centers. Here are El Pasoans feeding people at night. It's dinner time. They, you know, actually it was after dinner. Um, and people are wrapping up, cleaning up, going home. And social media blows up in El Paso. My phone blows up in El Paso. And everybody's saying, oh my gosh, there's about 130 families at the Greyhound bus station. I'll bring oranges. I'll bring water. I'm coming with pizza. And just El Pasoans responded immediately. Ruben, meanwhile, was calling uh, other advocates, finally got, you know, the Catholic Church opened up a hospitality center for these folks. They all were escorted from the Greyhound bus station where all they had was the clothes on their backs and their babies in their arms. They had nowhere to sleep. If we had not responded, they would have been sleeping on the streets on a cold October night. So Ruben leads them to a hospitality center. And that whole weekend, El Pasoans respond beautifully. Who's going to take the breakfast shift? Who's going to take the lunch shift? Who's going to take the dinner shift? And then it went back to normal and ICE promised they would never do it again. This was October. Well, in December, sure enough, on the 23rd of December, once again, it happens. This time it's colder because it's now, you know, two months later. Again, El Pasoans responded with so much beauty and generosity and goodwill. And, you know, on your Facebook feed, how people are sharing photos of Christmas gifts and their tree and shopping and funny jokes or whatever in El Paso, all of my, it's, I guess this is where you can tell you have good people who are your Facebook friends. The feed was about, we need to feed a hundred people today. Who's going to help? I did the Christmas shift. And that morning on Christmas morning, I called one of my friends who was caring for one of the groups that was released to the streets and he said, oh, my God, Veronica, I have 100 people to feed for dinner. And I said, OK, Simon, I'll take it. I post on my Facebook. Hey, Facebook friends, I have to feed 100 people who wants to help. And a dozen people immediately responded. We organized a conference call. I then realized all the grocery stores were closed. So we were like, oh, my God, OK, let's just scour our pantries and our refrigerators. We'll figure this out. And we decided to make burritos. And so uh, one of my compañeros said, I'll make 50 bean burritos. I said, okay, I'll make 50 papita con queso burritos. Another friend said, I'll make picadillo burritos. Uh, another friend said, I happen to have like two cases of fruit, but I'll bring it. Great. And we got to the hospitality center where we were in charge and we immediately 
started stuffing um, lunch bags with an orange, two burritos and a, a little thing of cookies because there was no place for these folks to eat. There was no big table. They needed to be able to take their lunch sack back to where they were sleeping to, to eat there. It was the most beautiful Christmas I've ever had in my life. And just looking around at, at El Pasoans, the way that we respond and the way that we care for others. And that's the border. Wow. Um, that's how I'm really glad you told me that story. And I can just tell you right now, just you, you've got emotional. This is personal for you. I mean, I think that's the one thing that you don't hear from because of representation, because now you have the most Latinos in Congress and you're bringing such a perspective, how personal this Trump policy has become. Just tell me what's going through your mind. Because I, I have, I do have a question about social media because I have followed your Facebook, <laughs> but I want you to kind of put up a, a bow to this because I don't really have ever seen a member of Congress like get emotional about their community. It really, truly is personal. The border is part of my identity. It is who I am. It is what I love. It is the people that I think make America great. And to see the inhumanity of this administration and the American government is very difficult. It's it's infuriating and it's heartbreaking. I've been fortunate to have been a part of three CODELs, congressional delegations that have visited El Paso and the El Paso sector, which includes southern New Mexico. And we have walked through the detention facilities where a room that is intended to house about 20 people is housing about three times that many. And it's it's the sheer inhumanity that is shocking. I've heard stories of the way that asylum seekers have fled misery only to find it here on our doorstep. And so, you know, we're better than this. We're better than this. And uh, so it is personal to me. And I, I, I want people to see the real border. If there was one thing you could do, what is it with immigration that you would want that people are not talking about? Well, people are not talking about how we should address these challenges. This is not a problem. We simply are not resourcing our ports of entry and we're not resourcing our agents appropriately. It's a challenge that we have that's that has a solution. The wall is a solution in search of a problem. That's different. And Americans pay their hard-earned tax dollars and provide them to the federal government so that we make wise decisions. And I want people to see the wisdom in the alternatives. All right. So my last question, we both share a birth year. I'm not going to reveal your age, but we are, I would just say we are, um, we're post-millennial, like we're Generation X. Let's put it that way. And But I noticed that, you know, everyone talks about AOC and other people using social media, but your Facebook feed is like, it's kicking butt in terms of like your, your friends. Like, tell me why you feel like that's important for you. Is it a way for you to like truly connect with people? You have one of the best Facebook walls and it's like so personal and it's not like, official page of, you know, you're not there yet. It's like, this is what I want to get. This is my Facebook page. What's up? This is my Facebook wall. So you mentioned it about your stories in El Paso, but tell me about how social media is helping you for the Gen Xers, because, you know, we're not the digital natives, but we went into 
college with a typewriter and walked out with like Macintoshes. So I bet as well. And I initially signed up for social media to spy on my kids. So <laughs> my daughter has since gotten off uh, Facebook. Um, but I do feel that that's I'm so far from home that I want people to see and know what's going on. I'm not as good as the younger generation or as on as often, but I do think it's such an important tool because it is an equalizer. And so I, I'm going to keep practicing and get better and then hope that my kids let me spy on them. But remember, we grew up in a much better generation, like in the 80s. Like this. <laughs> That's right. I remember writing notes and like sending, like uh, trying to slip notes to people in class. Now you text. It's wild. Congresswoman Veronica Escobar, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to be in your office. I know you have to go to the House vote, but Thank you so much. Gracias. Thank you. Gracias. You know, Julio, I, I love the fact that you got a little bit personal with her and that you were able to talk about, you know, kind of being, uh, uh, you know, this generation, you're 50 years old and it's like you're starting. Yeah. A, a new a new etapa of our lives. I mean, I'm assuming yep. that she never really that Veronica really wasn't thinking like, oh, and then I'm going to run for Congress and then I'm going to win. You know, and then I'm going to have to at 50 years old, figure out how I'm living between Washington, D.C. and El Paso. Not easy, by the way. I love the fact that you were kind of able to get um, a, a little bit more personal because I think that's part of what this whole movement in Congress is about. Right. It's it's not just electing women to elect the other gender. It's about recognizing what women bring into the halls of Congress. Yeah. And so, you know, the fact that she kind of went there with you, I think is a, she's showing like this is part of what we're going to do and do differently. Yeah. You know, and one of the things that I haven't had a moment to even think about this interview is just like getting there and the fact that I had a wait in her office and there were like there was like local salsa jars and they had a new assistant who had just joined and people were calling from El Paso every day. And she just is so flipping proud to be a fronteriza. And it was so genuine because I was there 20 minutes one on one in her congressional office. So it felt so, you know what it is, Maria? It's like you feel the weight of history. You're like, oh, my God, I'm at the Capitol with this elected official who really cares about her community. And that to me really hit me. Like to me, I know she's a politician, but it was also a historic moment. And it was a historic human moment as a Latino community. So I felt like this is important to to share with people. And I loved her story about making the burritos. And, and I mean, I was like, yes. that whole story of people like, let's help these people. I mean, that's El Paso right there. That's El Paso. That's what people don't realize is that actually, you know, in many of these places that are seen as dangerous or overrun by people of color and immigrants and Latinos and people who speak Spanish, actually, dude, like, there's a lot of community that's happening there yeah. and people helping community. I think that that what happened in El Paso that night that we heard that, you know, innocent people seeking refuge, traumatized people yeah. asking for asylum were just being dumped on the side of the road, you know, around Christmas time. That's the part. It was it was a Christmas week, too. Right. Wow. So that's good that um, Veronica was there. Um, you know, we always like to say we show a lot of different aspects of politics and the political conversation. It's nice when we can have a good conversation with a member of Congress. 
but we're still going to be holding your feet to the fireside. Just you need to know, Veronica, and all y'all, that's what we do. <laughs> I, I did tell her that. And that's a wrap. I'm Maria Hinojosa. And I'm Julio Ricardo Varela. Dear listener, please take a moment to go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. It really does help. Also, um, did you know that you can find us on Pandora and on Spotify? So, you know, just go to your phone and be like, ooh, I think I'll listen to In the Thick on Spotify today. <laughs> you know, let your mind explode with that. Um, follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at In the Thick Show. Like us on Facebook and tell your friends. Uh, In the Thick is produced by Juan Pablo Garnum and Nicole Rothwell. Our audio engineers are Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. Our intern is Lydia Hernandez Tapia. The music that you heard is courtesy of Nacional Kept and ZZK Records. We will see you next time on our next episode. In the meanwhile, have a great day and thank you so much for listening. Nos vemos. Ciao. Check the levels here. Okay. Um, just tell me what you had for breakfast. Special K. And then I ate again when I went to the Democratic caucus meeting because there was free food. So I had scrambled eggs. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs>